Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And Dominique, when I say that I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, I really should be saying I'm the author of the new revised edition of The Step-by-Step Guide in Pictures, because that's what it is, and which is really exciting. It's been a, a year-long project to get the book revised. The original book was published in 2003, I believe. That was that was uh, fun to write that because Panda was in training with me at the time, and she was just learning how to do things like stand next to my chair when I was working, because one of the things that a guide has to be able to do for long periods of time is to stand next to her handler and just kind of disappear into, it's not a nice way of saying it, but sort of disappear into the woodwork while her her blind handler is working. And so I was writing the book. I was sitting in in the dining room and Panda would be loose in the, in the house and she would wander around and in the downstairs part of the house. And in the morning when I brought her in, she would generally take a nap, um, which is very sweet because she'd dream and I'd hear her little whinny. And if I looked over, I'd see her feet moving and she's cantering along in her dreams. And then at some point she'd get up and she'd go have a drink and she'd wander around the house. And then she'd come over to me and I'm busy typing on the computer and and if she lined up at all next to my chair I would click and reinforce her and gradually I shaped her being right next to my chair and so for those who have the original book you can think oh this was a book that was written by a horse basically and that was 15 years ago so well more 2003 it's almost 17 years almost 17 years ago yeah yeah so there have been a lot of clinics, uh, a lot of horses that I've met, a lot of horses that I've worked with, a lot of conferences I've attended, a lot of training hours in the barn. There's been a, a, a lot of work that I've been sharing over the intervening 15, 16, 17 years. So when I started looking at the step-by-step book again, knowing that I needed to reprint it, I thought, you know, I have... I have a lot more to say about all the lessons that are in this book. And so rather than just reprinting the original, I went through and essentially, it's a brand new book. I essentially rewrote the entire thing. So the the format is the same. Mm -hmm. Um, Many of the lessons are the same. Some of the pictures are the same. But I think in every, every single lesson, which means every page, I've rewritten and added, which was kind of interesting and fun to look at, to look back over the 15, 20 years of clicker training. And that's what we wanted to talk about today is what has, what are some of the changes that we've seen in our own work, in our own evolution, as we've been exploring positive reinforcement training and what have we seen in general in the community in general? So before 
you asked me, well, what's different in the step-by-step book? Let me ask you, because you've now been exploring the positive reinforcement for quite a while, what would you say have been some of the major... <laughs> You're throwing the ball in my cap. You've been am. working one year intensively on this topic. <laughs> well, I'll tell you one thing. I'll tell you one thing. Because, you know, and, and we've alluded to this a few times, but when we first start clicker training, the one thing that, you know, we discover is that consequences drive behavior. And so a lot of the focus is on consequences, but what for me has been the big revelation in most more recently is the importance of antecedents. Yes. What, What happens before is a whole other subject so deep Um, And we've started looking at it with Jesus in webinars and the study that Michaela Hempen is doing on cribbing is also showing us how important um, what's happening in the environment before the behavior happens, how much we can do there um, and how much we need to learn more about it. So for me, it's been really, um, it's not so much taking the focus off of the consequence, but adding the importance of what happens before the behavior. Which really, I think, puts it into the whole context of loops. You know, because when we were focused just on, um, you know, we were never focused just on anything. But it certainly made sense in the early days of looking at clicker training that we would be really encouraged to look at consequences and the statement of consequences drive behavior. That when you say sit to a dog and the dog sits, it's not sitting because sit has some magic power. It's sitting because in the past, when it sat, you gave it hot dogs. And, and so sit was, is a predictor of hot dogs. You know, it made sense for us to look at the consequences because for so long we hadn't. And we certainly, for so long, we really hadn't focused in on how powerful the positive reinforcement really is. And then we started to, to think of this not just as this sort of linear, yes, I'm going to click and treat, which became very linear thinking, but it's a loop. And once you start thinking in loops, it takes you very much to antecedent arrangements. It takes you to the cues. It takes you to how much is the environment setting setting up the behavior that you're going that you're likely to get. How much is the environment cueing the behavior and and we need to look at that and it's not and not be completely dependent upon the yes, I'm going to click and reinforce you. I'm going to give you this this treat because what Michaela's doing with that cribbing project, it's, she just showed me some video a couple days ago and it's just staggering. I mean, this, this horse now in the, in, the, in the non-cribbing conditions, she'll go 40, four zero minutes without cribbing where before she was cribbing once per minute. At least. At least. Mm. and it's just it's just and then 
when Michaela put her back into the just normal conditions, she went 14 minutes without cribbing. Yeah, there's like an overspill from yeah. the conditions. Yeah. yeah. That's very interesting. And that you can turn it on and off depending upon whether you are, whether this horse is coming into the cribbing or the non-cribbing conditions. Mm -hmm. It's just staggering. And when you start thinking about that, you think, well, what are all these, the other places where you could apply this, you know, this kind of thinking. So it's really fun. We had, um, did, did you see it? We had a comment from somebody who sent a, a she sent us a, a comment via the website about a dog that she's been working with. And oh, I didn't see that. I'm pretty sure it came what, through what did she say? through the 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 website comment. It doesn't matter what she what she said. Well, it does matter in the sense that we can say to people, you know, you can you can get in touch with us through the website and send us comments and questions and and share we'll, some things we'll you've put been it discovering. In the show notes, yeah, so we'll make um, the research after and put it in the notes. right. But it's it's just nice to remind people that we are that we can be contacted in that way. Anyway, what yeah. she was what she was sharing is she's a dog trainer, not a horse person, mm -hmm. dog trainer, and she runs a boarding stable, I believe I'm remembering this correctly. And one of the dogs that she has taken care of for a very long time is a barker. Yap, 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 the whole time that this dog is off lead. But what she was noticing is the dog doesn't bark when she's on a lead. On oh, leash, yeah, I saw that. So, yeah, so you did see it, good. So what she's done yeah, yeah, yeah. is she now can, and it, it happened really fast. So she has a non-bark condition. She has the dog right. wear the lead. So the, the lead is wrapped around the, the dog's neck. And I've seen a video of it. It's very safe. The dog isn't going to get strangled by the lead. And she can be off the lead. There's no barking. It's really fascinating. Hmm. Really fun. Yeah. You know, the other thing, too, that I think for me was a very different um, is not fighting, to take the words of Jesus, not fighting extinction and the whole discussion we had around cues. Um, because I, you know, we used to wait and let try and let the dog figure out, is this going to get me a reinforcement or not? And I'm finding now that we are more precise, more clear for the animal, and we're not just letting them figure it out and go through all the frustration of the extinction process. Right, right. And that, for me, has been something that's been in place for a really long time. I think that yeah, because you've, you've been saying cues evolve out of the shaping process, and so you you didn't have to go through this extinction when you were teaching the cues. But it's it's a change from from the original literature. It is a change. It it very much is a change. That the way that I was originally taught was exactly what you're describing. The the whole you're using extinction. You get the behavior happening. You have the animal, for example, touching a target. I mean, that's even that's a change. So 
in the way that it was originally described, you have the the animal orient to a target, click and treat, orient to a target, click and treat, orient to the target, click and treat. And then the language was, and now you're ready to attach a cue to it. Well, mm-hmm. I think one and of the big... And you still see it a lot. You still yeah, see but it a lot. one of the things that I think we're understanding more is that hello, there already was a cue, that the object itself was a cue. And so I think we're we're becoming, we've expanded our understanding of the way in which the environment cues, the way in which, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, routine, the way in which uh, your routine cues behavior. Like, for example, if, if, if I've been asking for head down, and maybe I've been raising my hand towards the horse's neck and the horse drops his head, click and treat. And I raise my hand, the horse drops his head, click and treat. I raise my hand, click and treat. I've been doing that a lot. So head down is really hot. And then my horse drops his head. Well, of course he's going to drop his head because I've made head lowering really hot. So it's not a surprise that he would offer that behavior that the routining of it in part is what is generating the behavior. And I think we were not really as aware of how much you can get by priming behaviors Mm -hmm. and how useful that is to prime behaviors. Mm -hmm. And that instead of fighting it, you know, that expression, Jesus' expression of don't fight extinction, instead of fighting that, that we use it. So I think one of the one of the things that has certainly been evolving is how do we use how do we use the things that are happening instead of fighting against them? Mm-hmm. What other things? Well, the clean loops. I think that's you know you didn't read about that in fifteen years ago. No, no. So that later. was that was one of the things that I had to add into the the new version of the step-by-step book because we didn't we weren't talking about loopy training so and that was quite and it's a... so useful i oh, mean it's like yes. the best the best guide in the world yes you know if you want to know if you're in the right direction the loops the clean loops is so easy to understand and it'll tell you if you're doing clean training training yes. or not so it's the most useful thing and I assume by now everyone who listens to this podcast knows what we mean by clean loops, but should we? I I I think I think we'll we'll make that assumption, and if they if they aren't, we'll say go listen to some of the previous podcasts because we've talked about them, and I think we even have podcasts that we call loopy training that that'll be good to go back and and refresh. But you know that was quite an interesting challenge with the book because. I had to keep the same number of pages because as soon as you increase the page count, you increase the expense of the book. Mm-hmm. So you, And you can't just increase the page by one or two, not the way pages, not the way books are printed. You, you produce signatures, which are groups of, of pages. So you can't just add a page or two you have to add full signatures or half signatures that's getting very people don't need to know all of that but what it amounts to is 
if you're going to make a book longer, it's going to cost more to produce. And I didn't want to have to raise the price of the book when I did the reprint. So I wanted to keep the same number of pages, but I absolutely had to add in the loopy training. So it was quite, it was quite an interesting exercise in how do I put all of this new material in because there really wasn't anything I wanted to take out, particularly. Mm. How do I put it in without expanding the number of pages? And I did manage it. So loopy training is in there as well as uh, and I and the other the other major reorganization early on in the book is more a matter of reorganization than anything else. In the first book, I talked about three foundation lessons. So I had backing, Ooh. yeah, backing, head lowering, and what was my third? Probably grown-ups. Hmm. Um, you would have to have grown-ups in there. Well, I had all six of the foundation lessons, but I didn't have them you as... Didn't call them? I didn't call them foundation lessons. Okay. So I had standing on a map, but I didn't, I hadn't yet elevated it to this is a foundation <laughs> lesson mm-hmm. and I certainly I had the happy faces targeting. ears forward oh targeting yeah so it would have been so grown-ups was not a foundation lesson so it was so targeting backing, backing and head lowering and head lowering. were the three okay. foundation lessons in the original book mm-hmm. and and I hadn't yet said you know this cluster of six and just gradually became really clear to me that those six lessons, head lowering, backing, targeting, ears forward, grown-ups are talking and stand on a mat, that together they really knit together to form a solid, solid foundation. Hmm. And that they really coalesced into these six lessons you really need to focus on, you need to build them out as solid lessons, and they are the core foundation. And with that core foundation, you're then teaching all the basic concepts for the handler. You're, te- you're able to teach all the basic concepts so that you can really understand how clicker training works, and you end up with a horse that has really good, safe ground manners, that is emotionally very stable, and that has a core repertoire that lets you build all the other things that you want to teach your horse. Mm -hmm. What else did you revise or new concepts that you put in that was not discussed at the beginning of the 2000? Well, I think one of the things that I, I hope I made even clearer is the, the different phases of learning about clicker training and teaching clicker training for your horse. So the first phase is, let me introduce clicker training to my horse. And that's where you're teaching those six foundation lessons. And then the second phase is, really, what do I do with all of this? So you have people who will say, oh, I taught my horse to touch a target. You know, that was fun, but what do you do with it? What do you do with this clicker training? So in the second phase, you use it, you use the clicker training 
and you use the foundation lessons to teach the universals. So that's where you move to after you've done sort of the uh, basic first approximation in with uh, the targeting. I've got a little bit of head lowering going. My horse is beginning to show me decent grown-ups. I may not have much duration in it yet, but I at least have introduced the behavior. You now start going into the universals, and the universals are those things that we all do with our horses, regardless of whether we ride them, we don't ride them. I ride English, you ride Western, uh, you ride out in the back country, I ride in an arena, uh, you know, whatever those, the, the differences are, we all groom our horses. We all clean out their feet. Um, for the most part, we put halters and leads on them. Often we're putting blankets on or putting bridles on. Those things that are sort of universal husbandry skills. And that's really where you head to next. And they're really fun because you can with the universals, you can develop what I always think of as Grand Prix level universals. So, mm. you know, you can take a horse that knows how to pick up his feet okay. And we did a podcast recently on, on foot care, you know, where I can... Oh, and by the way, just a little parenthesis, you did, a, because people asked, sent us questions about the hind leg. Oh yeah. Um, how you and you did? I think both you and Cindy Martin, on the Click That Teaches face. Oh, that's a closed group though. No, well, Isn't it's it? it's a closed group, but it, all people have to do is is is, is request. Is yeah, part of the group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think you. Some people asked us to give precision about the hind legs, how to. Um, they needed help with uh, horses that were too, they would snap up their legs and how to do this. And I think both you and Cindy gave really good advice on the Click That Teaches uh, page. So yeah. people Cindy should is check a, it out. Cindy yeah. is a superstar. She is such a treasure because she, she is so oh, she is. unbelievably generous with her, her knowledge, her really? information. We need by the way, we need to get her back for another podcast because we just Absolutely. we just scratched the surface. So, yeah. so husbandry. Was yeah. The so phase so we do the so the husbandry and this this the Grand Prix level husbandry. Right. So you can have a horse where you you know the standard thing is you run your hand down the horse's leg and and maybe the horse picks his leg up nicely or you pry it off the ground and you get the foot clean and 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 you get by. It's all right. But Grand Prix level foot care is completely different. That's where you can point to the horse's foot and he picks it up. He holds it up beautifully. There's no leaning down. He's not leaning his weight onto you. He makes it really easy. When you are done with his foot, he sets it down gently. It's just a beautiful, beautiful thing to behold. Grand Prix mounting block. That I love that. So, you know, normal mounting block behavior, you lead the horse over to the mounting block and you line him up and maybe he moves a little bit. You pick the mounting block up if it's a little footstool and you move it over and then you, you get on and off you go. In clicker training mounting block behavior, you teach the horse to bring himself over to the mounting block. So you 
can walk into your riding space, you leave the horse out in the middle of it, you walk over to the mounting block, the horse comes over on his own, he lines himself up next to the mounting block and stands there beautifully lined up while you put your foot in the stirrup and, and settle yourself into the saddle and he's still standing quietly and he waits until you signal him to walk off. And in Grand Prix level, he, he comes at a canter and he can come at a canter past, you know, buckets of grain or uh, other distractions. And it's just really fun to get to that level. So that whole let's look at the universals and take things that are very ordinary and everyday. And with the clicker training, you can turn them into extraordinary things in all of the all of the medical care, uh, all of that, the, that husbandry of the that is involved in the cooperative care and so on. All of that sits under the umbrella of the universals. And when you and certainly all already just that is a big revolution. Oh, yeah. Because when when you go back after that, you know, once you have that that kind of relationship with your horse, that softness with your horse, that collaboration, and you go back on YouTube and you see, you know, these cowboys telling you that pushing their horses and saying, this horse needs to learn to respect me as I am respecting him. Well, it's just like another planet. It is another planet. Yeah. It's a big revolution. I mean, to see this, the how light we can be in what we ask our horses and how willingly they will, between brackets, comply, yeah. <laughs> accept to do the behaviors. It's, it's a revolution. Yes. Yes, it really is. And it's a, it's a complete change in our thinking of really seeing what is possible. You know, when the, the animal that really got me started with the clicker training was, or the video, I, you know, it was a video of an African bull elephant who was at the San Diego Zoo. And this was a pilot project that was done in, I think it was 1986, so a chunk of time ago. And Gary Priest, who was then the director of training at the San Diego Zoo, ran this program. And, and this elephant was incredibly aggressive. He had gone after his keepers on a number of occasions. And so it was determined that no one could go into the, his enclosure with him, which meant that this elephant was not getting any foot care. And he had not had foot care for 10 years which is a really, uh, for an animal that is being kept in the zoo conditions, is really quite frightening because in the wild, they would wear down their hoof pads the same way that our horses in the wild would wear their feet down and they wouldn't need to be trimmed. But the way that we keep them, for the most part, we need to have they, their feet trimmed on a regular basis or they can get into they can begin to have problems so this elephant was not getting his foot care and so they did a pilot project using targeting to direct the elephant to come up to the front of his enclosure and they had made these little windows in the enclosure gate through which he could lift his foot 
and rest his foot on a little, like a stirrup bar. And while he kept his foot there, they could clean his foot, hose it off, and give him uh, the first foot care that he had had in over 10 years. And there's this great video where Gary is, is showing this and he's saying, I can't express to you enough how aggressive this animal was, but he's standing there cooperating for just social attention and a bucket of food treats. And mm-hmm. I looked at that, that to, for me was just, it was an astounding video to see because what I know from the horse world is that if that had been a horse, it would have been the old three men and a boy holding the horse down to get his his feet done. All the, the make it happen muscle and ropes and all the rest of it because the horse is small enough that we can compared to an elephant. And to see this animal who was cooperating in his own care. And I think in many ways, the zoos have inspired a lot of a lot of us to do better. When we see some of the, the, the video where you have animals that, like the cheetahs that would come up and present themselves for blood draws. And you could yeah. just, they'd be pressed against the wire mesh of their cage and the keeper could do a blood draw. It's like, wow, wow. And yeah, I think that was a revelation for for many many people. Um, if they could do it with the elephant and the the felines, why couldn't we do it with our horses? Yeah. So yeah. So that's our face two. Grand Prix, phase two. What's phase well, two? phase two is the universals. So phase yeah. two is just let's let's use the the clicker training to work on those those everyday things. And mm-hmm. by doing that, the handler learns a lot more about how clicker training works and becomes mm-hmm. more creative in all the different ways that you can use it. The horse becomes more familiar with the information, how to use the information that the click is providing. So it's a good mm-hmm. next step. It's a good next direction to head in. It's a great place to learn how to build duration in behavior. So the universals are a, a great next place to head once you've begun experimenting with the clicker training. And then once and you, you can spend a lot of time there, <laughs> you can spend the rest of your life there, you know, and, yeah. and have some really, really impressive things to, to show for it. You know, that's the whole yeah. point of the... You know, let's have Grand Prix uh, grooming, Grand Prix foot care, Grand Prix mounting blocks, because it really does look impressive. And it takes, to really perfect anything, takes skill and time and a lot of thinking. So, you, you know, you can certainly get to the point where I can groom my horse, it's just fine. You know, it's, it's, it's better than it was. Or you can just keep expanding on it and making it fancier and fancier. And I have to say for my own horses that there are a couple things that I would say are, you know, truly beyond the ordinary. And a lot of things that are just sit in the just normal. I, I wouldn't say that I have Grand Prix grooming, but I've seen 
horses that do have Grand Prix grooming. And it's really impressive. So, Mm -hmm. you know, and and not every... And if you have more than one horse, (laughs) I mean, each one will bring different challenges. So again, you can spend quite a lot of time in this And each horse will have different different repertoire. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's you don't have to have every horse heading to the um not every horse and every behavior needs to be at a grand prix level just as not every riding horse not every every horse that you ride and explore dressage is going to become a grand prix level dressage horse but there are lots of people who would say oh you know i have no i have no desire to or i could never train a Grand Prix level jumper or dressage horse or, you know, that's, that's, that's not, that's not me. I'm just a trail rider. And it's like, oh, Mm -hmm. but trail riding requires great skill as well. And wouldn't it be great to have a Grand Prix level mounting block horse that you take out on the trail so that anytime you stand on something, and designated as a mounting block, your horse knows exactly how to line up next to it so that you can get on easily. I mean, that's just like in a cartoon. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so you know, there's to take behaviors and really explore them so they become. You know, there's a, a great expression: the longer you stay with an exercise, the more good things you see that it gives you, and that's really. What this is about is saying, I'm just going to spend a little bit of extra time with this and just see where it can take me. It's sort of like... Um, and I think that's part of our bias to split things and make sure we have all the building blocks. Because usually in traditional um, training, a lot of people would go over this phase really quickly, just want to write. Yeah. Right. Just want to get on top of my on on the back of my horse, but all these things you had, you know the cle- the picking the feet, the shower, the putting the halter on, etc. All these things are far from being mastered, but people don't spend time there. Right. Right. And it can be simple as as saying, you know, right now, I'm I'm living in a boarding barn where. I have to have my horse on cross ties because that's the culture. But wouldn't it be nice if I could, on those times when I'm in the barn and there aren't other people around, that I could have my horse just standing in the barn aisle on his mat and I could groom him on his mat and he doesn't have to be tied. And maybe as that becomes more and more the norm for my horse that even when there's another horse or two in the barn, he could still stay on his mat, that he would be able to to stay on his mat beautifully even when there are distractions and people going past him with wheelbarrows and so on. And who knows, maybe as he gets really good at that, the barn culture will start to shift a little bit and I'll start to see some other people whose horses can stand beautifully and not need to be on cross ties. You know, it's easy to have, it's easy to just, oh, I'll just put my horse on 
cross ties and not bother. But it's kind of fun to explore the possibility of, could I shift a little bit away from that? And maybe when I'm out in the arena, just to work on the ground tying of, can I have you on, on your mat? Will you stay on your mat while I begin to walk around you? And can I, will you stay on your mat while I stroke your, your neck and run my hand across your back and down a, along your tail? And can I take a step or two away from you? And pretty soon I have a horse that will ground tie. And, and now I can walk away and get my brushes or I could set up a circle of cones while my horse is staying ground tied and, and so on. And now I have a completely different picture from the one that I started with. And that's really how it evolves. You just, it's, it's little things over a period of time begin to accumulate until you have something that looks very different from where you started and that really starts to look quite impressive. Especially when you and haven't seen it learning, before. You're learning how your horse learns. So this obviously will be very helpful when you're riding, if you want to ride, because, you know, you need to understand how they learn. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And it, it should... And Go ahead. Yep. No, go ahead. <laughs> what were you going to say? <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> I've forgotten too. So we'll 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 go somewhere <laughs> yeah, we'll else. <laughs> no, we won't. I think that's quite charming. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so so there are the the universals, and the universals lead us then to performance work. So that's when yes. you start to look at whether it's performance on the ground or performance under saddle, and so performance work includes all the trick training. It includes the the groundwork, the the work in hand, the you know, and that's really when you start to look in detail at what is my passion, which is balance. You know, always that sits at the core of everything, and then it takes you into the riding and whatever discipline within the riding is is your particular interest. But if you have the core understanding from the teaching of the foundation lessons and the teaching of the universals, that will stand you in really good stead for understanding how you now teach new skills to your horse when you're starting to look at performance work. So there's the, it, it gives you a really nice stair step from the very simple touching a target, taking a step back, dropping your head for a moment or two into much more complex work, the performance work. But really, once you start getting into the performance work, it's all built out of loops. It's built out of components, you know, really the building blocks. And you have that understanding that something might seem like a really complex lesson, but by the time you're working on it, you're really just always working on the next small step. You're never trying, you're never reaching for something that feels really hard because you're, you're just reaching for the next small 
approximation. And I think that's one of the things that makes clicker training so appealing because you don't have to overface yourself or your horse. You look you can look at what is it that what is it that I need to learn or my horse needs to learn today and that I can work on and be successful with. And for some people, they may say, oh, it feels overwhelming. What I want to do is ride. It's like, well, but what would keep you today from just getting on and riding? Well, my horse won't stand next to the mounting block, so I can't get on. And when I try and get on without the mounting block, he's, he dances all over the place because he never stands still. Great. Well, let's let's go into those foundation lessons and see if they can help you to teach your horse how to stand still. And then once you have a horse who will orient forward to a target, you can use the targeting to ask the horse to follow you. You can ask the horse now to stop with you as you walk forward and then stop and go into grown-ups. You can take the horse to a mat and now you've got a horse standing still where you didn't have a horse standing still before. So it's just a matter of how do I tease it apart and tease it apart to find that step that is doable for me, for my horse today. And I won't worry about all the other things that I can't do yet. I'll just look at, well, this is what I'm working on today. This is that little piece that I'm working on today. So as you were writing the book yeah I mean if you felt like every page there was something to some new nuances do you feel that a lot has changed in the community in the clicker training community uh, in the past um, 15 20 years does it seem like a lot that it's evolving very uh, rapidly or what's your take I'm going to jump in at this point and leave the answer to Dominique's question for next week. Our conversation takes us to a discussion of errorless learning, which it turns out gave me the perfect opportunity to talk about our spring clicker science camp that's going to be held in May at my barn. Errorless learning is going to be one of the central themes of our presentations at that event. So, for now, I want to thank Dominique for asking about the new step-by-step -step book. It's been a delight to talk about it. It's a really huge accomplishment to get a book finished, and I'm just delighted that it's now at the printer. It's gonna, I'm gonna be getting it really in just a couple of days, and it will be ready to ship. So you can order it through my website, theclickercenter.com, it's going to be coming in mid-December, hopefully in time to ship out to everyone for Christmas or at least for the new year. So happy holidays, everyone, and enjoy your horses.